It's a sombre week for the world of tennis. The second Grand Slam, Roland Garros, would have started on Sunday night Australian time. It's disappointing that we don't have it, but the good thing is we can look back on the history of the tournament and what moments the tournaments or the, the tournament has brought us joy. Uh, this is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Ferbo. Plenty to get through today. Some big guests, some big bits of news. But before we get into any of that, let's talk to, well, the man that makes this show or makes the duo what it is, Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you? I'm good, Val. I'm very, very good indeed. A little, uh, I guess, disappointing when you think about the fact that Roland Garros was, as you said, it was meant to be this week, but uh, or this fortnight. But um, yeah, I, I think at this point, I'm almost pretty used to having no tennis, unfortunately. Um, and beyond that, pretty much no sport at all. Um, but look, we're finding ways. We're still yeah. here. We're talking about it. Yeah. Um, Trying to, the, anyway. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and um, look, it's not completely off the table that the French Open um, may go ahead. We think it might not, but we'll talk about that in a minute anyway. We will. But fit. yeah, it's good to be here and um, we, uh, we've been delving into uh, into the history books a little bit still, so we're going to talk about that later on as well. We definitely are. We're going to talk about our top three French Open moments in history. We're going to chat to some very big guests as well. Um, we've got two current players and uh, that, this, is a, this is a break point first. It is a break point first, um, and that means uh, twice the rapid fire. So we'll have a bit mm. of fun with uh, James Duckworth and uh, Gabby the Silverfick. And um, I, I guess, Val, you could say that we're ducking excited about uh, the, uh, the about this big ficking show that we've got. <laughs> yeah, well, we had to uh, we had to throw it out there, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We, we did. It's it's we look, it. it'd be rude not to. Um, so yeah, we could. I think you can do it with both names. It's great. Um, but yeah, first, actually, first first things first. Now you played. This week, the restrictions have been lifted in Victoria. I did play. And you played. How did you go? Yeah. Uh, not too bad. Not That's... too bad, actually. Um, a little, uh, little scratchy. Um, there was a lot of rust on the, uh, a lot of rust on the old metal. Um, certainly with the ground strokes, I was surprised by how well I served. Actually, I was feeling the serve. The serve was was uh, was all right. Um, yeah, still, uh, still some work to be done there. But um, I was pleasantly surprised. Unfortunately, it looks like probably won't be getting uh, the, the actual season back um, anytime soon, especially considering that uh, I think four courts at the club are closed off for coaching um, and that leaves only three uh, for public use and they have to be booked. So, um, yeah, I, somehow I don't think we're going to be playing anytime soon. But nevertheless, uh, I've just been itching to get out on the court and it was so good to get back out there. I'm stoked. Nice. That's good. Did you hear me jump forehands? Um. Yeah, I did hit one actually, and I got it in. So, oh, nice! There you go. Beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, it didn't go into the car park. No, uh, no windscreens were broken afterwards. Um, and yeah, the um, the interesting thing is, um, I'm really glad that I actually got it in the court, not because of the car thing, but um, if it had gone into the other courts, we wouldn't have actually been able to get the ball back. So that was uh, that was the real uh, concern because um, <laughs> the courts were closed. Um, yeah, but I did try the jumping forehand, and um, I actually nailed it. So I was uh, was happy with that. Pity there there was go. nothing at stake. To his own horn. There we go. Um, that's the <laughs> good start. I just love how you said not because of the car thing. That's why I was happy that I didn't get that it that it <laughs> went in. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But um, no, glad you got back out there. I'm um, yeah, I probably need to do the same and get my skills up to scratch because they are they are pretty shocking at the moment. I would be lucky to get one out of every ten forehands in, and probably the same with the backhand, the serve, and the slice are probably my only saving grace. So, um, uh, we'll digress and not chat about my shocking tennis skills. Um, the French Open, as we did mention off the top, would have been starting on uh, Sunday night. Fifteen years ago, um, I think it was on Sunday, that um, Rafa won his very first French Open match against Lars, Lars Bergsmuller and uh, en route to his uh, first French Open title in 2005. And look, there's been some wonderful memories from the tournament. And uh, Guy Fouguet has been uh, talking, well, he's part of the French Open committee and He's been chatting about um, trying to work out, or he's the French Open director, actually, and he's been trying to work with tennis authorities to make sure that the dates of the Clay Court Grand Slam and the US Open and, and the tournaments surrounding the US Open don't clash. So they're actually trying to work with other tournaments for once, which is great. Um, but I'm... Which tournament? That's the thing. Yeah, it doesn't say. It only really says they're working with the US Open. So that that's the worry. So look, I'd be very look at on the calendar. You'd have to agree that Grand Slams do take precedence, but 
unfortunately, it, it's probably going to mean that if they do go ahead, a lot of tournaments are going to be cancelled, and I find that really disappointing. Yeah, same. Um, you know, I've spoken a lot of times about how the sort of unilateral approach really is um, is not ideal um, from the French Open, and you know, it's all well and good to align with the US Open. Um, uh, in, in that sense, as you said, Val, um, you know when we when we look at things on their merits, you, you, obviously there's more points available for the, for the Grand Slams and the most prestigious events. Um, they're Grand Slams; that's the reality of it. They're, they're, they are more important than than the other tournaments. But the bottom line is, if we just can all these other tournaments that potentially can go ahead, we we still don't know that. But if they can go ahead, I mean, what's 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 uh, what's stopping these tournaments to stay? Well. You know, what about our people? Why can't we make our money? Why can't our umpires, um, our officials, whatever, our economy, why can't they make their money? Um, and, I mean, even if the Grand Slams go ahead, I mean, really, this is another thing that we just keep talking about. I mean, what, what's – I think they'll be, they'll be highly, highly compromised, um, not only from the fact that any incoming players from overseas, players that are allowed to travel, um, which I can't really see a whole lot of them um, – being allowed to travel at the moment. If they have to go into quarantine or whatever, then, you know, they're going to go in underdone. Um, and also the fact without without the lead-up tournaments, um, there's there's another whole um, another whole lack of preparation. So, um, you know, if, if the Grand Slams do go ahead, um, you know, of course, we'll probably watch them because we love tennis. We mm. want to see some tennis. But I think the reality is um, they just they just won't be the same. Um, and if they're going to go ahead, then we're going to we're just going to have to accept that the Grand Slams. Uh, well, I think anyway, certainly aren't, aren't going to be. Um, they're not going to have that that same appeal, you know, the same the same robustness about them because there's going to be a, a very very uneven playing field. And there's been a lot of talk about our and for the international listeners, Australian rules football will kick off on the 11th of June, and there's been a lot of talk that the season will have a massive asterisk next to it for whoever's the Premier. I don't think that should be the case for our domestic sport. But with a Grand Slam and with it most likely being compromised in terms of players that are actually having the ability to travel, if if that's the case, should there be an asterisk next to it and should it even be counted as a Grand Slam? Hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting one, and I guess it's another whole can of worms, isn't it? Um, it's a tough one to answer. Um, I mean, if, if they get played, I mean, the answer would, would have to be yes, really. Um, because, I mean, again, you've got to consider who, who is playing, um, what's the breadth of, of player that's actually going to be there, um, you know, which, which players have been at an advantage, and you would have to say that probably the majority of the European players um, you know, I can't see I can't see any of the uh, American players, um, you know, Australian players, Canadians, um, whoever else coming from elsewhere in the world having, um, you know, any sort of um, any sort of uh, advantage. Um, it's just I, I just can't see how um, the Grand Slams can happen really with um, you know uh, with with an even playing field. I think it's pretty much it's pretty much impossible. I'm I'm really of the opinion, Val, that we just need to focus on. On domestic events that have been spoken about a lot um, for the rest of 2020, and possibly, if if needed, hopefully not. But if worst comes to worst, that well, let's say the beginning of 2021. Um, but yeah, I think we need to, as as a tennis community, we really need to start thinking about 2021 and, and how we can get back to normal from there. Yep, and I think that's the plans that Tennis Australia have in place, and that a lot of other tennis organisations have in place as well. And I think that's. Look, we've been saying it to death. It's a broken record on this show, but put a pin in it. That's it. Just put a pin in 2020. It's domestic sports are the way to go. Unfortunately, that, that's that's what we're going to have to get through. And, um, you know, soccer, AFL, baseball, basketball, all those sports, that'll get you through. Unfortunately, you know, we want tennis to come back. We really do. We love the sport. We're still talking about it when it's not on. But um, it just doesn't seem like a viable option to have the tours... Um, and to have two Grand Slams so close to each other and out of whack, and, like, the French sh- should have been cancelled anyway. We're not getting Wimbledon ahead. Wimbledon's the one that everyone cares about the most. So, um, you know, we'll watch it, but I just don't see the point. I really don't see the point. I reckon it's just a waste of time and um, a waste of unnecessary stress that, that we don't need. So there's um, 
yeah, it's it's such an interesting situation, and I think we're about three weeks away from hearing what the US USTA is going to do. And um, yeah, I'm, I think the popcorn's out, ready to go, and ready to read that statement and and see what happens. But yeah, fingers crossed that we do get a resolution to all of this very soon, and um, and we can find out what the minutia of all the plans are. And I guess guess again, we'll see what happens. And just quickly, Joel, before we do move on, the news that we posted last night uh, of Nicholas Basilashvili, the Georgian tennis player, um, that uh, the alleged domestic violence dispute, he's posted bail, could face up to three years in prison for alleged domestic violence against his ex-wife in front of his five-year-old son. So fingers crossed that isn't true, Joel. Um, you know, domestic violence can't be condoned in any any way possible it's an absolutely abhorrent crime and um, you need to feel safe in your own home so hopefully the Georgian courts can come to the truth and um, and what actually happened um, he's denied it so um, fingers crossed we can find out the truth and move on from this really ugly situation moving on Joel and well we're talking about relief funds again and Alexandra Krunic last week has come out and essentially slammed Novak Djokovic's relief fund plan saying that they're giving too much money to the players that are ranked uh, well outside the top 250 and saying if they're giving them grand slam type money they should well that money should be going to the players that are actually competing and playing in grand slams and look she does have a fair point yeah i mean look i've you know from the from the start bell i've i've been very much of the opinion that the the players can help each other I, i do acknowledge though that um you know what? What Dominic Team has said, and, and now what Alexandra Krunich is saying is that, um, you know, that, that the players should be able to have some control over where their money is going, which I think is is fair enough. Um, what's interesting is that um, clearly, when it comes to the topic of, of player relief, um, there is still a lot to be worked out, and there's a lot of division um, amongst the players about how um, this this idea should, should come to, to fruition. Um, obviously, Dominic Team has been a big voice um, of um, not so much change, but he's, he's, been, uh, he's put forward his opinions and how this can be workshopped. Now we've seen Alexandra Krunic. We've also seen Matteo Berrettini and Guido Paya as well. Um, even Anastasia Rodionova, I think, had something to say about it too. So, um, look, even when you hear the, the lower-ranked players coming out and saying, well, no, it's not really up to the players to, to help them out, um, you know, I, I guess that's where you really have to sort of, you know, take things seriously and, and go back to the drawing board and, and sort of take their, their thoughts on board. Um, but you're right, and we, we will talk about this with, um, with Gabby De Silverthick and also James Duckworth as, as well. Is it down to um, the governing bodies to, to chip in more? I know you certainly believe that to be the case. I, I um, you know, I agree. They, they are the ones with all the control over tennis, yeah. the structures, the prize money. They have a big role to play. But when it comes to um, the players themselves and how they want to go about this thing, um, you know, I think having this relief fund yet. I, I think it's a great idea, but clearly um, there are a lot of uh, divisions that, that need to be worked through before we, we come up with a final product. And given the sheer size of, of the respective tours, um, I mean, do we ask ourselves, really, Is will there actually be one? Um, I mean, there are so many players and I would imagine so many thoughts and concerns to work through. Um, at the moment, it's we're about to go into June. Um, so, I mean, my my big question from now is going forward, um, given that it's clearly not a, uh, I guess, clearly there aren't um, unified opinions on this across the board, will we actually get a relief fund when it's needed? Because um, certainly in Australia, we're hoping, at least in our neck of the woods, that we're past the worst of COVID-19, maybe not in other parts of the world, we can't speak for that, um, but are we almost getting to a point where a relief fund might become redundant who knows well you actually do make a good point because yeah we are in june now and nothing is really eventuated yet so I, I we're not privy to what's happening in the in the player councils we're not privy to what's happening in the four walls of the organizations of the itf the atp and the the wta so it'd be nice to nice to get an update of of, of what's actually going to happen and and the plans moving forward and um you know, there's been statements released here and there by by all three organisations, but I think what we need is a little bit more transparency with with the actual plans of action and what's happening. And we mentioned with Guy Fourgay, um, the French Open director, that 
you know, they're, they're looking at working with other tournaments to try and make sure that the calendar looks right. But why are we hearing that from him? Why aren't we hearing that from the WTA, from the ATP, from the ITF? We need to hear it. We need to hear a unified source of transparency here. And we're not hearing yeah. it with any sort of, any sort of the, or any of these uh, news stories, whether it be tournaments, whether it be the calendar, whether it be a relief fund, whether it be anything to do with tennis and, and the plans to reemerge from COVID-19. So what, you know, what's going to happen? I think that statements need to come out and you're right. We need, we need to hear something. And I, I hope that a relief fund isn't redundant. I hope it's not the players that provide it. I hope it is the organizations that do come out and say, look, this is what you've lost. Um, so let's reimburse you with that money and let's give you a little bit extra to get you kickstarted again because you haven't been able to compete. So that's where the money should be coming from. And we're hearing nothing of any sort of plans by any of the big three organizations uh, to come out and assist. So it's it's been, I think it's been disappointing. I think the lack of communication by the governing bodies in tennis um, has, been, has been poor, really poor. So... Fingers crossed that um, we can actually get some clarification on where we're going and and the direction that we're heading in. And if not, then I think a restructure is is probably one of the best things that we can hope for because it's it's been pretty insipid uh, to the date. Yeah, I think so. And um, you know, when, when we've spoken to players on on this show. Um, and even former players as well, um, Daniela Hantikova and also Marinko Matosovic, they've all said that um, at the end of the day, the one thing that needs to happen um, is that um, prize money needs to be more evenly distributed, which yeah. I think is fair enough. Um, yeah. And really, that is um, that is the you know the underlying source of, of all the inequality that we that we do have in in the sport. Um, you know, unfortunately, I understand why that is the case because people, you know, people want to want to see, they want to hear about. Novak, Federer, Williams, Nadal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know the, the interest doesn't necessarily trickle down the rankings, and so that's really why that's the case. But um, you know, I think this if if there's anything good about the downtime in tennis that we're having at the moment, it's that we can really assess the sport, put the magnifying glass on, and say, all right, how can we change for the better? How can you know? How can we increase the interest in in the in the uh, the, the lower parts of, of the ranking. How can how can how can um, how can two fifties become more appealing? How can challenges become more appealing? Well, I think the the point you raised, saying that everyone wants to hear about those big players, if the money was more evenly distributed, I think we the hunger to hear about players ranked in the two hundreds would be there because they'd be able to compete more, they'd be able to fund themselves more, they'd be able to travel, and actually give themselves a red hot crack of competing in grand slams and getting to, you know, the third or fourth round, getting their rankings up and their stories become more well known. So we get to know more about these players. We get to know, we get to know them more intimately through social media. More people follow them, more people get involved with them, more people want to hear more about them. I think it's a domino effect that if they have more money, if more, if the money is more evenly distributed, the, level of interest in challenger tournaments will go up. The level of interest and competitiveness in challenges and 250s will go up. We already see that players ranked in the 300s can win a challenger tournament. If they have the funding and the ability to pay for coaching and, and so on, if they've got all of that ability, they can compete and they can start to get it into a better headspace. And they're, they're damn good tennis players, as BP said last week. The players ranked yeah, in the are, 300s yeah. and 400s, they're damn good. But the inability to buy to pay for a coach to travel with you for fifty two weeks a year, the inability to you know stay in a nice hotel for fifty two weeks a year, that doesn't help. If you're sleeping on if you exactly for food or whatever, if you're not if you're sleeping on the floor of an airport, how is that going to help your your tennis career? It's not because you need to be well rested. It all comes from money. It all does, and you know money doesn't buy you happiness, but it can allow you to be comfortable and to prosper in the industry that you're working in, and especially tennis, because it's so, so difficult to to make a living and to actually get yourself up into that top echelon. So it's it's easy. It's it's really easy. The governing bodies, and I've said this 
every week, and I'm probably going to say it next week as well, <laughs> that the money needs to be more evenly distributed. And it's easy to do. It's so easy. $4 million for the winner of the Australian Open. Take away $2 million from the men's and women's singles and put that into and all the Grand Slams. Put that into qualifying. Put that, inject that into the challenger circuits. Inject that into your own, into the play, the young players of that governing body. Tennis Australia could inject that into the juniors. Uh, the French Tennis Federation could do it. The All England Lawn Tennis Club could do it. The USTA could do it. It's not hard. There's plans that are set in place. And look, I'm sure, I'm sure that it's a lot easier said than done, but it could be done very easily. Yeah, I think it can be done. I think it's yeah, I think it's going to come down to sort of the the outlook that the governing bodies take. Um, are they going to go sort of more pragmatic and and go, I guess, um, you know, according according to that like the model that we currently have, um, or are they going to sort of take on a cosmo, more cosmopolitan view and say, all right, well, if we prop up the low, you know, the the, the lower ranked players and restructure that prize money, um, you know, will are we willing to make that investment? Um, the long-term investment that will ultimately bring them up. Yep, exactly. And um, yeah, it's hopefully they do. And look, it's a, as we've said so many times today, it's a broken record on this show. It, it, it's got to happen. And uh, I'd, I'd love to chat to one of the player advocates for this. And hopefully we can try and get try and track down John Millman and get him on and try and chat to him about this because we know how strongly he feels about it. So um, we'll leave that in the pipelines. Fingers crossed we do get him. But, Joel, should we move on to our first guest? Yes, we should, Joel. Joel, our first guest of the show today is someone that we know very well. We had her on the show a couple of years ago, just after her junior run at the Australian Open in 2018. It's a great pleasure to welcome her back. She's no longer a junior. She's uh, ranked in the 400s on the WTA Tour, 448 to be exact. Gabriella De Silva Fick, how are you going? Good. Thank you for having me on again. It's good now, to be back. <laughs> I know you've uh, you passed the first test with flying colours, so we um we thought you'd ha- we'd have you back on and um and chat a bit more about your career and how you've been going since we last spoke to you. But first things first, how's everything going with the COVID nineteen pandemic? I feel as though that's been the first question we've asked everybody we've had on the show. So let's continue that trend. I've actually been pretty good, thank you. I've been home in Sydney now for I think it's a couple months. I mean the weeks are going so quick. But I didn't want to be stuck in Melbourne alone. So it's been nice to be home with family, um, enjoy the beaches where I live in Sydney. Um, the tennis centre near me has been open, so I've been able to train like four times a week. Obviously, gyms are closed, but I've had so much open space. So I'm actually really enjoying kind of the break, I guess. Um, and I feel like everyone's ready to come back when it will all start again. So I can't say it's been too difficult for me. Um, but I think I'm lucky having my family around me and the space. Yeah, I think that's been the main thing for a lot of people, having their family and trying to make sure they're as comfortable as possible because it's not a comfortable situation in any sense of the word. And and you mentioned that you've been able to hit. Um, how often have you been playing and um, and how, how's the form going over, um, over this pandemic? Uh, I think, you know what, the first few weeks of training I guess I'm not training a full schedule I'm probably hitting between three and four times a week um and the first few weeks were hard because I would say when I train I like to put my head down and go so I had to take a bit of a back step and be like okay this could be a couple months more like half a year of training so just take your time um but I've been hitting with like Abby Myers Ivana Popovic um so there's quite a few girls around, and now Jess Moore's actually moved to Sydney. So I hit with her last week, and I'm hitting with her tomorrow again. So I'm surrounded by good people, good good tennis players. So it's been great to be on court and have a little bit more of a light-hearted approach. It's yeah. really interesting, Gabby, to see uh, how all the different players have sort of been dealing with um, dealing with isolation and what they've been doing, and. Um, I think Val was telling me before that you were doing a bit of work at, uh, at the family cafe. So how um, how was that for you? Um, that was a one-day job. Oh, one day. <laughs> God, I heard it in one interview. <laughs> I did offer more, but I was declined. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, that was, that was fun. That was a good change of scenery. And I have been offering to come back, but he's been all right, so... 
I, I didn't argue with him when he said, no, it's okay. Those 4 a.m. Uh, wake-ups were brutal. Oh, so, no. Uh, um, <laughs> so what was the role? Were you making coffees or just sort of bringing stuff to the table or what, what were you doing? Yeah, I was the waitress. Serving, taking coffees, cleaning tables. Fun times. Um, but obviously with the restrictions, they have to cut stuff a little bit. So um, I did come in one day and I think we played basketball for the whole day because it was a bit quiet. <laughs> oh. Oh, <laughs> so I didn't even know if you could oh. say I work today. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Back on the, uh, I guess, back on the on the tennis itself, um, we had uh, we had Mark Holmans a couple of weeks ago and we were sort of talking to him about what he had planned um, in 2020, obviously before all this hit and he sort of had some some big things uh, planned and obviously unfortunately didn't quite get to, to realise them. But um, how about yourself, Gabby? What was your sort of outlook um, looking for, or how was it looking for, for 2020 in terms of like where you want to go, what kind of tournaments you were hoping to play? Yeah, absolutely. I had um, also scheduled a pretty full-on um, year and I was really looking forward to that because I would have been in Europe for a couple months. I was actually meant to be in America on the 1st of April. Um, so I was looking forward to playing another full year where I could just compete as many weeks as I wanted to. Um, kind of, it would have been my second year that I could have played without restrictions, um, with the WTA age restrictions. So for me, it was a big year. I had high hopes for this year but saying that this I mean the uncertainty is unsettling but we have to try and take the positives out of this it's been a good chance to work on stuff not only in tennis but um I will specific like specific specifically in tennis like my mental side my mindset um so in a way it is disappointing not to be able to travel this full year and and really make some jumps in the rankings like I was hoping to, but it's another opportunity to learn and develop a side that I might not have spent as much time on if this didn't happen. And I, I remember we actually bumped into each other at Chadston Shopping Centre um, yes. back when India <laughs> Wells just got cancelled and you said that you're about to go to America. Um, and, yeah, so how how do you deal with, with the disappointment? And you talked about your mindset then and how, how have you gone about trying to make yourself more positive and trying to really focus on, on the positives of this whole situation and, um, and trying to um, move away from that disappointment of not having a second full year and not trying to make that jump and having to delay that a year? What, what exactly do you go through and what processes do you try and set yourself out to, to try and achieve um, a more positive mindset? Yeah, I would say I'm a very um, – I like to have a schedule. I like to have a timeline like most athletes. So that, that was difficult in the beginning not to be able to plan something, you know. I mean, how do you plan for this? So um, I would say I had to pretty much go week by week. You know, I have to go, okay, if the borders open on June the 1st and gyms reopen in the next month, then I'll head back to Melbourne. But not putting myself under that pressure to be performing at my peak or feel like I'm – you know, training the best I've ever trained, like I'm full physicality. Um, so I think it is hard to kind of take that pressure off myself, but it is it's to sustain it's kind of what we have to do this year. When it was, I guess, at its worst, Gabby, what kind of access to resources did you have in terms of, um, you know, your support team? Obviously, you've got your coach, and um, it was certainly from um, the players that we've heard from. It's, it was pretty difficult to, I guess, work, work remotely and not really have that physical um, connection to, to coaching, things like that. So um, how was it for you in, in dealing with that? Did you have that kind of access? Yeah, well, being in Sydney, so my coach is in Melbourne and also my trainer, Narelle. So... Um, I've been in contact with them pretty much every week. My trainer, Narelle, is still giving me weekly schedules, um, planning out workouts, and she's really good with variety. So, I mean, I've been bike riding, running. So I've been lucky to have that connection still, like, every week. You know, I don't feel like I've lost contact with them whatsoever. I feel like we still have a really close relationship. So uh, I've been lucky that at Colleroy Tennis Centre they've been able to provide courts racket, restrings, you know, the little things that really help during this time. Um, so I've just, I would say I would 
I'm counting my lucky stars that I have really great people around me who are willing to support me during this time. Um, and obviously taking the time out to do little things with friends, like going stand up paddleboarding or going for a walk instead of, you know, doing another session, strength session, you know, it's the, it's the time to, um, kind of rejuvenate the mind. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you've been golfing a bit too. I have been <laughs> golfing. I wasn't going to bring that up because I think I've been bringing it up too often. <laughs> but, uh. Um, yeah, my dad played golf, so I've been at the driving range quite a lot, and then I finally got onto the course, I think it was last week. Uh, it was just a bit too busy, though. It was, it was really stressful, so I hit someone off my first tee shot. I, actually, I missed them by, like, a meter, and I just saw his head pop out on the other, like, fairway, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Anyway, it could only go up from here, so um, I actually am really enjoying that. I'm really, really enjoying the golf. Um, just letting my mind kind of learn something new. Yeah. I don't like to be bad at something, yeah. <laughs> but I am bad at the moment. So, yeah. Don't worry. If you, I'm sorry. I'm sure if you saw me or Joel play golf, I've only ever been to a driving range twice, <laughs> and they shank at 90 degree angles. So, um, don't worry. I think I think you're fine. But um, move, moving on, just quickly, and for someone that's just starting out her career like yourself, um, we, we've had a lot of discussions on the show about. I think the, the monetary situations of tennis and how difficult it is for young players to actually make their way on tour and financially set themselves up. How how tough have you found it um, over the early days of your career and trans, uh, transitioning from the junior tour to the to the senior tour? Um, it's not easy. I, I would say like when I moved to Melbourne a couple of years ago, that was specifically to go and um, – be coached by Andrea Stoltenberg and that was a big change obviously having to pretty much find a new home we were kind of in and out of hotels so that I've been lucky with my parents they've been able to support me um I've, I've had a little bit of support from TA um and the Women's Tennis Foundation it is difficult it's a topic that is being brought up a lot more recently which I think is great because you know, it's it's the little. It's not even a, a massive sum of money that every player needs, but it's the little things like court hire, restringing facilities, balls that make quite a big difference. Um, so it is difficult. I think I'm lucky that I have the support of my parents. I would prefer not to have to rely on them for certain um, financial support, but. At the moment, I'm lucky that I have that, and I, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of people in the same boat, and you kind of just have to keep going. If you believe it, you can achieve it. So you just have to keep going. Yeah, fair, more than fair enough. And just um, uh, another quick one: who, like, I'm of the belief that the owners should be on the ATP, WTA, and ITF to reduce this inequity in tennis. And, you know, there's a lot of people that think it should be the players. Who do you believe that the responsibility sits or that responsibility sits with? Um, because I think that, you know, there's there's a lot, it's a lot easier for, for the governing bodies to change things than it is for the players. And they've obviously got the tools to do so. Absolutely. I think it's up to the ITF, the WTA and ATP. Um, I do, I know there was talk about a possible merge between ATP and WTA. And I think that would be quite a good thing because, you know, it's, it's a big organization, I think. And it can, it has so much um, support to offer. I do think it is up to the organizations to change the structure. I don't think it's up to the players. They've, they've kind of gone through the same process that we're going through as a player. So, yeah, I believe it's up to the organisations to change the structure. Yep. Uh, well, answer, Gabby. It's a pretty polarising uh, issue, it has to be said, but it has been brought up a lot. Now, just before we do let you go, we've uh, brought in a new segment on our show. Whenever we get players on, we like to uh, do a bit of rapid fire with them. So we uh, basically the idea of it is to kind of find out a bit more about the people that the players are. So you'll get the hang of this pretty quick and you'll sort of see what we're, okay. what we're getting. So the first little question that we have for you is R&B or rock music? R&B. Yep, right. What's uh, what's what's the first track on uh, on Spotify that you're getting out? 
Um, I honestly love all music. So at the moment, I'm loving Jack Johnson. I do like country as well. Um, yeah, I would say anything Jack that by Jack Johnson at the moment. Yeah, very nice. Bit banana pancakes. Can't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe this is the answer. But uh, what's your go to? What's your go to meal the night before a match? Oh, this is hard. Um, I would say some sort of protein, vegetables and rice. <laughs> okay, steak. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Steak. Oh, yeah. yes. Now, still on the food topic, if you had to enter into a cooking competition, what dish are you making? Oh, I've been practicing my baking skills a little bit. Um, I've nailed a good granola. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, oh, banana, banana bread. I think everybody, oh, yeah. everybody's oh, been doing banana yeah. bread. I'm like ninety percent of Australians at the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole isolation a big banana bread off. I reckon. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which player did you look up to growing up? Um, this is a hard one. I wouldn't say there was anyone specifically. Um, I think recently, I mean, Ash, she embodies the player and person a lot of people aspire to be like. So I would say Ash recently. Um, and I, oh, I'm going to have to go Rafa. Yeah, I think his work ethic, his determination, commitment, you know, that's, that's yeah. something to look up to as a young player. Yep, good call. We all love Ash. Friends yes. or Oh, that's brutal. That's oh, I am not a big TV series watcher, so I've not watched either. <laughs> You've not seen either? Oh, Friend, wow. But I'll go Friends. I'll say Friends. Okay. That's like choosing Very between different. your favourite children. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> oh, it's God. Not easy. What's your favourite place that you've travelled to, either for tennis or for leisure? Um, I would say Portugal. I love Europe, um, and Portugal is one of my favourite places to go. Yep. Very yeah. Now, the other side of the coin, what's the worst place you've travelled to? Um, I would have to say Bolivia. Ah, okay. Yeah, that was a little bit rough. That's interesting. Yeah. We've, had, we've had a couple of Uzbekistan, and um, we've, we've, okay. had one in, we've had one in China as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. I would say China and Bolivia. Yeah. Last one. If you weren't a tennis player and you could be doing anything else instead, what would you like to be doing? Um, currently, golf. <laughs> that would, <laughs> I would say golf, although um, I'm really interested in detective work, so maybe oh. that route a little bit, but. At the moment, I would say a golfer. Sounds good. Nice. Yeah. Very good. Just from <laughs> um, from one sporting profession to the other, it's all it's all hand eye coordination. You athletes kill me because you're good at everything. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Gabby, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you again and see My how pleasure. far your career has come. I think you've risen up uh, about three hundred spots since we spoke to you last time. So it's uh, um, absolutely brilliant to chat to you again and. Um, and hopefully, um, hopefully we'll chat to you soon and you'll be in the top 100 by that time. So fingers crossed. Thank you for having me on. Good to chat as always. Well, moving on, Joel, to our second massive guest of the, of the show. And um, it's an absolute pleasure to have this man on. He's uh, the world number 83, very close to a career-high ranking of 71, which he achieved back in February. He's taken the tennis world by storm and he could be classified as the uh, the king of India. He's won a couple of challenger tournaments there and made his first ATP semi-final there in, uh, in Pune back in February. His name is James Duckworth. James, thanks so much for joining us on the show, mate. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. First things first, how's the uh, COVID-19 pandemic treating you and, um, and what have you been up to? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been okay. Uh, I've just been trying to Sort of keep busy, keep fit, um, as sort of everyone else. I've uh, been able to get uh, a few pieces of equipment from the, the gym at, at Tennyson. In my, so I've got it in my living room here. Got a stationary bike, a um, few, few little weights. So, yeah, doing a little bit of that, doing a little bit of running just at the local park. Um, 
and yeah, just sort of uh, waiting this this period out. Um, and just just quickly before we do get into the uh, the more career based stuff, um, your social media has been on song, and there was one video that you posted uh, at the start of the the COVID campaign with um when Wimbledon was cancelled with you and the racket with the song you've got a friend in me playing in the background. Um, tell us about that and um what inspired the video. Um, well, actually, it was inspired by uh, a rugby league player, Alex Johnson. He yep. sort of did a bit of a similar-ish type video with a, a footy when um, when NRL was, was cancelled. I saw that. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, and then when Wimbledon was, was cancelled, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have a crack at doing the same sort of thing. But um, And then, yeah, I um, just managed to convince my girlfriend to filming me doing all this ridiculous stuff. Um, but then it was actually funny. I was I was trying to post the the video on Instagram, and I'm not great with sort of social media rules and stuff. So I'd actually had the the um, the actual songs playing in in the background, oh. and I I tried to post it twice, um, but it got taken down for copyright both both times. Um, and I was sort of trying to find out how to do it without it. I couldn't work it out. So actually, my my sister sings a little bit. So I messaged her. I was like. Can you can you sing these songs for me? So it's actually her singing in the background. Um, I think she did a pretty good job. Um, no, it sounded so, yeah. really good, brilliant. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. No, they they're pretty. They tend to, they tend to be pretty quick with that. We tried to post a post a video on our socials last week, and um, Joel was uh, rudely reminded <laughs> that um, it got taken down straight away. So, um, yeah, no, they're they're pretty quick to do that. But um, no, it's uh, it was awesome content. And just quickly, you've had some shoulder surgery as well in the um in the office uh, in the in the break and um just tell us how you're tracking and um how things are going yeah so um i've been sort of having some issues for about nine ten months um just sort of managing it uh and yeah when the season was suspended decided just to to have a little bit of a clean out um so yeah not not a big operation but um yeah just thought i'd sort of try it throughout this period hopefully i can yeah Im- improve um some of my pain that, that i was getting um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't have actually got the surgery unless we were suspended. I was going to keep playing and just sort of keep managing it. Um, yeah, so just doing a bunch of bunch of rehab and, and strengthening, and um, you know, trying to get it as as right as possible um, for, for when we kick off again. If the tour hadn't have been sort of brought to the crashing halt that um, it, it had been, Duck, um, had we have kept playing, what what was your schedule looking like? What kind of tournaments were you hoping to sort of get out and and uh, and try and play? Yeah, so I was yeah I was I was obviously in I was in America I was um, getting ready for for Indian Wells and and then Miami um, and then I was uh, I wasn't exactly sort of sure between sort of yeah Miami and um, sort of the week before French uh, or, yeah I wasn't sure on that sort of part but then yeah sort of I was, I was managed to get my ranking up to in the, so I was in all the Grand Slams so I was playing French and, and then folks trying to focus on that the grass court season post French um, was, was a pretty big period for me and then I guess probably probably staying over after Wimbledon in the States and going pretty much all the way through from the um, from the grass all the way through to, to the US Open uh, trying to play quite a few of those tour events there some pretty nice tournaments and in conditions that I, that I like yeah, and um, of course we know that uh, obviously Wimbledon's been been cancelled, but uh, the French Open and the US Open at the moment are sort of clinging on to that hope that that they will play. Um, I guess the uncertainty for for players, what kind of effect does that have on you? Because as well as the fact that we haven't really got a set date for those postponed Grand Slams, it it, it also is looking pretty unlikely that we'll have those sort of lead up events. So I can only imagine that brings with it a lot of uncertainty for a player. Yeah, it's tricky. Um... You've never obviously been in a situation like this. Um, you, you're always, I guess, even when you're out injured or, or sort of yeah, taking breaks, there's always a, a plan and a, and a goal and something that you're training towards um, to, to get back for. Yeah, right right now, obviously, just with the unknown of when you start again, it's tricky to sort of plan and, and um, you know, schedule your training around that. So I think... Um, you know, a lot of guys are, are just sort of trying to do enough to, to stay in shape. And once there's sort of a bit of a more definite um, timeline on when they'll start up, they'll, they'll have like another, yeah, a, sort of a pre-season, I guess, a sort of a four or six weeks sort of pre-season to, to really sort of get themselves going. And talking about the the break as well, you are, you are obviously someone that um, it was it came at the wrong time for, I guess, in terms of the way you were playing and the form that you were in. And 
Um, there, there weren't many or as many points to defend towards the, the end of the year apart from a, you had a good challenger season, but if you really made that transition on tour, it could have been really good for the ranking. What what exactly does that do for you mentally? Does it does it give you the drive to just say, look, I'm just going to work as hard as I can um, throughout this break and just try and come back better than ever? Or did it take a little bit of time to adjust to? Um, well, yeah, look, obviously disappointing that I... Yeah, I got my ranking to a to a good spot, and yeah, unable to, to play um, the events that uh, yeah I worked worked hard to, to get into. But um, you know, I guess I with getting this sort of shoulder um, hopefully sorted, it, it's given me something to to, to focus on, and um, I guess not uh, sort of waste not waste this time, but but use this time to sort of be productive in that area. Um, and, and yeah, once I get back on court, I'll, I'll be trying to um, work on a few different areas of, of my game. Um, and then yeah, once once the tour gets gets going again, I'm, I'm you know I'll, I'll be trying to uh, I guess yeah Im- improve that that sort of ranking that, that I've got and, and continue to to stay at that high level. Well, fingers crossed you do get a bit of luck because one thing I want to ask you over your career, you came back from um, from surgery in 2018 and you copped, I think, the worst Grand Slam draws that I've ever seen from anybody. You got Zverev at the uh, – sorry, Chilich at the French, Zverev at Wimbledon, Murray at the US and then Nadal at last year's French Open uh, – sorry, Australian Open. Um, what was going through your mind when, when you drew Rafa for the fourth consecutive time? You've just got, you've just got an absolute champion of the game. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, uh, it, it wasn't a, a yeah. It was a pretty unlucky stretch that one. Um, you know, I was. It was not, cool to play on centre court again. I played on there a couple of times um, previously against Rog and and, and Leighton. Um, but yeah, look, I just saw it as an opportunity. Uh, I, I guess you, that's that's all you can do. You, you can't be just you know going around kicking stones. Uh, you just take it as an opportunity to see where you're at against one of the best players of the world, um, you know, of all time, really. Um, look, I think I played actually a pretty good match in, in that one. Um, you did break him yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Um, I played okay, and he's, he's a tough opponent, obviously. He ended up making the final that year. Um, yeah, but, you know, these things happen with draws. You get some, you get some good luck, you get some bad luck. I think it all evens out in the end, but... Yeah, we saw your tweet as well, uh, Doc. Um, if uh, from the ATP, if you could change any result in uh, in tennis history, and uh, you find um, a nice little response, which was pretty funny as well. But um, I guess another sort of interesting quirk about your uh, career in the last few years is that you've played um, certainly in the Australian Open. You've played in a lot of hot conditions, and um, the one that sort of came to mind for me was uh, your match against uh, Ben Mitchell, which I actually, I think I was, uh, I was somewhere up the back. I was, was watching on. It was a, a big five setter. And then you came up against Blaise Kavcic as well. Um, and then I think that match against Roger Federer was also in some, some pretty warm weather, something like uh, 42 degrees or something. So, I mean, what's that like to be, um, to be in that position? Obviously we know tennis is a summer sport clearly, but um, when you, when you go into conditions that extreme, I mean, what kind of effect does it have on you? Um, uh, yeah, personally, I actually don't mind playing in the heat. Uh, I've been training up here in, in Brisbane for s- nearly eight years now. So it's, it's very hot and humid here. Um, so it's something I'm, I'm used to. And generally, I, I sort of see it as a little bit of an advantage against um, certain guys who, who aren't sort of used to it. And, and then also, uh, generally, when it's hot, the, the ball's sort of flying through the air a little bit quicker, it's a little bit bouncier, which I quite like for my serve. Um, so, so yeah, from, from, from that standpoint, I, I quite enjoy it. But then, obviously, I, I, you, you watch me play, I, I'm a huge sweater. So, uh, keeping hydrated is, um, is, is very key. And uh, I guess, yeah, get, getting all the right nutrition um, pre and, and post matches is, is, is really critical for, for those types of conditions. Um, and, and, yeah. Um, well, and also the, the match against Kavchich went to, went to 50, went to, I think it got to 50 degrees on court. Um, but you ended up getting your revenge on social media afterwards because you posted it. I think he ended up going to hospital or something for, for heat stroke and you, you pulled up in a little bit better condition, but then you also avenged that loss in a five setter, uh, two years later. How, how was that to finally get the wood over him and, um, and move through to that second round? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I, I would have traded places with him to, to have got that win. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely would have would have copped a, a night in hospital to have won rather than feeling okay. Um, but yeah, Blaz and I have had a, a tough uh, few battles. We mm. played a couple of times. Uh, we played twice at Aussie, yeah. um, twice at French. Um, yeah, in 20, 2013 when I lost him in Aussie, that, that was uh, yeah, it was a tough loss, 10-8 in the fifth. I was, yeah, it was really hot that day. And actually, yeah. like the... My lead up was was pretty brutal in that, you know, I played I played Benny on either the Monday or the Tuesday, I can't remember which day, and we played an eight six four hours, and then um, actually the next day I had to play doubles. I ended up losing doubles seven six in the third the next day, and then I had to back it up again by playing Blaz, yeah, fifty degrees on court. So that was a pretty tough few days physically. Um, but there, yeah, then yeah, managed to 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 get him um, in in 2014 at the French um, in in qualies there, and then yeah, it was it was really nice getting him, um, you know, first round again at Aussie Open. Uh, there was a, a few sort of you know bad memories um, creeping in when I was up first to one and lost the lost the fourth. But um, I remember that day getting awesome um, crowd support in that in that fifth set, and that really got me over the line. And that was um, yeah, it was a really nice uh, win. Something that we've uh, been talking a lot about, Duck, on uh, on the show in the last, really, probably since we've uh, come back uh, on air, which was probably about six weeks ago. I reckon every single week we've been speaking about the idea of um, of the relief fund that's been floated in the midst of the, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and um, it's it's been pretty polarizing, it seems, um, among the players. But um, what we've gathered from the players that we've, uh, that we've spoken to and the past players as well, like um, Marinko Matosevic and Mark Polmans and even um, Daniela Huntakova as, as well, they all said that they think that um, the real way forward for tennis is to actually take the structure of like the Grand Slams um, and the prize money needs to take on a more even spread and, and that's how the uh, the imbalance um, can sort of be relieved, if, if you like. So what, what's your take on it? I mean, um, is, is the way forward for tennis just to, to really sort of take a look now um, at that prize money and, and how it's distributed? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think this this corona uh, situation has, has really sort of outlined that um, not enough people uh, are able to make a living from the sport. Um, so, so yeah, obviously the structure then needs to be uh, to to be looked at, um, and and yeah, the, the distribution I think needs to go um, a, a bit further. So, so, so yeah, more more guys are um, yeah are able to, to to fund themselves. Tennis, obviously, extremely expensive sport, um, and and yeah, hopefully from this we can sort of uh, you know, pr- progress um, to to where you know a, a few more guys are, are making money. Yeah, of course, and um, obviously in your career, you've you've had to sort of battle it at times as well. So um, I guess for any any of our listeners that sort of don't really, I guess, fully appreciate what it's what it's like to be battling away, sort of lower down the rankings before you really make your breakthrough in uh, I guess the smaller tournaments and some of the more obscure countries. Can you give us a little bit of insight uh, as as to what it's like uh, going through those um, going through those phases? Yeah, um, so there's yeah, obviously the, the start out in the, in the futures and then into the challenges and then progress into the ATP events and um, you, you have to go through those those levels um, playing in some some not so uh, nice places. Um, you know, I've, I've been through some some pretty average spots in in um, China and, and different parts of Asia and you, you're not playing for for much money. You know, if you if you win a future, um, I think it's about. 2000 US, well, that, that's sort of what it was when, when I was playing. And then, you know, winning a challenger, it's, it's 7000 US, and that's um, that's, bef- that's before tax. And, and then you got you got to factor in all the, the expenses, um, the, the flights. Uh, now accommodation is, is, is paid for, which is which is nice. But um, yeah, flights, you know, coaching, physio, all those things, um, it sort of it, it, it adds up. And yeah, it, it's a it's a tough um, it's tough tough grind. The, those those, uh, I guess, sort of transition periods, um, and, and I guess it makes you appreciate it quite a bit more once you uh, are able to get through them. We've brought in uh, brought in a new seg, Duck. Uh, it's called Rapid Fire, and the idea of this is that we want to have a little bit of fun with the players, and uh, whenever we get them on, uh, we sort of ask them some uh, some rather random questions, if you like. Um, we just uh, like to get uh, get to know a bit more about uh, the person that, that lies behind the player. So you'll get the idea of this pretty quick so the first one is r&b or rock rock 
Right, yep, I like that. Good call. Um, and considering we asked Gabby, I might as well uh, may as well ask you what's uh, what's your go to track on uh, on Spotify? Uh, as in, like, is in just an individual song or like a playlist or what? Yeah, song or or a band even. Um, my mine changes sort of every week. Um, yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just like it, it changes every week. I, I'll generally just listen to the the same song throughout a tournament, um, you know, especially if I keep winning, I sort of, I, I keep doing that. Uh, I've probably listened to quite a lot of Ed, Ed Sheeran in the last um, sort of year or so. He's, he's been a prominent sort of feature, I'd, I'd say him, but yeah, I've, I've actually been listening to quite a bit of um, sort of uh, 80s and 90s sort of Aussie rock stuff the last, um, since I've been, been in isolation, it's been getting me through a few bike sessions. Oh yeah, very nice. And well, on that topic, I may as well ask, did you watch Powderfinger the other night? No, I didn't. I didn't actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, it was good. It was good. Now, I think Val was, um, when I put this in the run sheet, Val, uh, I, I could wanted, hear him cringing. I wanted no part of this question, so <laughs> Joel, far away. <laughs> Ducks or geese? Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, had to ask. Had to ask. What's your go-to meal the night before a match? Um, there's some, some sort of either pasta or... or Rice with um, sort of chicken and, and, and vegetables, yeah, some, some, some proteins, a few vegetables, and, and yeah, just some, some carbs, nothing sort of super special. Yep, very nice. I think I know the answer to this one, but we'll fire it away at you anyway because you're a big, uh, I think you're a Knights fan. NRL or AFL? Yeah, NRL. NRL, yep. Wrong, wrong, wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Yeah, Friends or Seinfeld? Um... Yeah, I haven't watched heaps of, of either. Maybe Friends. My girlfriend likes it. It's on, it's on at our house a bit, a bit more. Yeah, so maybe Friends. I'll take Friends. Oh, yeah. Happy wife, happy life, huh? Favourite place you've travelled for tennis or leisure? Um, oh, I, I really enjoy just uh, my, my my family's beach house at Avoca Beach. Um, that's a really, really cool spot. And then for tennis, um, I always enjoy the, the English sort of grass court swing. So, you know, London in, in summertime is nice. Yeah, it is very nice until you get on the tube, then it's rather awful. Uh, what's the worst place you've travelled? Um, yeah, China's China's not. There's some some cities in China that I've that I've been to not been great. Um, or one city in Russia. I went to Lamontov in Russia. That was kind of scary. Oh, actually, sorry, maybe maybe Guayaquil in Ecuador. Yeah, that was. Oh, right. There was yeah one of the players um got uh, went out to dinner and was was getting a taxi home was held at knife point and it was yeah it's just pretty dangerous there were, the courts were about three hundred meters from the hotel I remember asking the the lady uh, at the reception if it was okay for me to walk she she said yeah just walk quickly and, and, and make sure you're not you're not out at night at all um so yeah that was a bit uh, scary. Yeah, right. We've had a couple of nominations for South America, a couple for China, and also a couple for Uzbekistan as well. So there's, um, I haven't heard great things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either, of, either of we. If you weren't a tennis player and you could do anything else, what would you like to be doing? Um, I mean, being a quarterback for an NFL team would be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I reckon that would be pretty, a pretty good, pretty good job. Yeah, it would Who be. Who Oh, I don't massively follow a particular team, but I'm just I'm involved in in fantasy, so I, I sort of more follow players. Um, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I guess follow the players on, on my team. I just just do that. More than fair enough. More than fair enough. Just before we do let you go, James, um, the Davis Cup in uh, Adelaide earlier on in the year was your first live rubber playing doubles with uh, with John Pierce and making that debut for your country. Um, just talk us through the feeling of of playing for Australia and um, having the crowd support and actually wearing the green and gold and playing with uh, with Leighton as your captain and um, and you know joining such a rich rich history of um, of Australian tennis. Yeah, it was an awesome experience. I was yeah super excited when um, when Leighton called me and and asked me if you know if I wanted to be in the team and um, the the jacket presentation uh, a few nights before the tie. I was doing my jacket from um, from Sand and Stolly who. I'd grown up um, he, when I'd grown up. He was the the head coach um, at uh, at Tennis New South Wales um, at the academy there. So so it was cool having him present me my, my jacket and getting my, my number one eleven, which I thought was a pretty cool number. Um, 
yeah, it was it was a great week and and you know something that I've always dreamed of, of doing. I've been in the squad a few times, but to you know be in the team and to you know go out there and have sing the national anthem with Australia on the back is something really special. And um, it was it was great to to get the call up and, and play that doubles. Disappointing to to lose. Um, you know, probably a few things I'd like to have you know done a little bit better in that in that match, but um, you know, all in all, a great experience. Something I'll remember for the rest of my life and. Um, you know, hopefully I can I can do it again. Well, fingers crossed we do see it again, and I'm sure we will um, if the Davis Cup does go ahead this year. We're still not sure whether that's going to happen. But, James, thanks so much, mate, for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully when the tour does kick off again, you're there roaring and ready to go and, um, and getting back up the rankings and um, achieving new career highs like you've already done this year. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. James Duckworth there, the world number 83, joining us on Breakpoint. Great to get an insight on what he's been up to over the COVID uh, pandemic and um, and also his insight into his career as well. And he's played in some of the most oppressive conditions that I've ever seen. And um, a couple of votes for China now in the worst place they've travelled for tennis. Yeah, um, and especially now, you wouldn't want to be in China at the moment, I don't think. But um, I'll tell you what, Val, um, I was pleasantly surprised. He loved my duck and goose question. Yeah, I, I admittedly did want no part in that because <laughs> ducks or geese, like <laughs> I don't know where you I don't know where you pulled that from, Joel. But um, <laughs> that was look, it, it worked out nicely. But oh my god, I I I read it and I was like, oh, you're kidding me, aren't you? Um, but no, nah, very very nice. Um, no, nah, it was a good interview, and um, he's a great guy and one of the more humble guys on tour. So. Fingers crossed we can see the best of him in, uh, in if there is tennis in 2020 or at least 2021 when the tours do kick back off. Yeah, fingers crossed. And um, I guess Duck's another another guy that um, you know the, 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 the pause in tennis probably came at the wrong time for, really. But having said that, of course, as he said, he was nursing that, um, that shoulder problem. So he's been able to have surgery. So, um, yeah, hopefully on the other side of that he can come back and um, play uh, pain-free and... Um, yeah, fingers crossed that um, after that he uh, he can actually uh, you know um, get get further up the ratings, career high ranking of seventy one. So fingers crossed he can surpass that. He's only twelve off it at the moment. Let's hope so. Now, Joel, just quickly before we wrap up, we did throw to the top of the show that we chat about some of the history of the French Open, and we thought that the two of us could go through our top three favorite French Open moments um, that that we found probably the most enjoyable. So. Um, let's start with you and we'll go with your top three and, um, and go from there. Then I'll give mine and then we can get into Benoit. Yep. Sounds good, Val. So coming in at number three, I've gone with, uh, probably the, well, definitely the most recent, uh, French Open, um, of course, from last year, Ash Barty winning her maiden grand slam. Um, of course, as Australians, we all, uh, we all love that and, um, you know, it wasn't all smooth sailing for Ash in the semi-final and the final, but or more so in the final. But um, she got there in the end, and uh, we were all over the moon. Uh, at number two, off court, the completion of the roof on Finally. the Chasseriet. Um, I can't look past that. Um, Roland Garros, welcome to uh, the 21st century. You finally made it. Um, and uh, at uh, number one, I've gone very old school. It was certainly before our time. Mm. Um, but something that I think deserves to be celebrated. Um, Chris Abbott's final French Open title in 1986 when she defeated Martina Navratilova in three sets. Um, of course, that was her seventh Roland Garros crown. Could have even been more because she took a bit of a break um, from the French um, uh, in the midst of uh, her dominant years where she absolutely just completely dominated the clay. Could have won more Grand Slam, which is the scary thing, but... Um, of course, only Steffi Graf has, uh, has gone near her when it comes to winning uh, French Open title. She's got six. Um, for me, it's hard to see any other woman um, going anywhere near uh, Chris Everett's French Open record. Yep, I don't think anybody will. So, fantastic. That was a queen, nice... Queen. Oh, 100% Queen. 100%. Um, my top three... Well, this one's a little bit from left field as well, but uh, number three, Gaston Gaudio winning the uh, 2004... Oh event uh, never got past the fourth round of a grand slam again after that and um yeah saved match points in the final against Guillermo Coria was de- uh, up two sets to love and Coria uh, came back and uh sorry was down yeah down two sets to love and Gaudio came back saved a match point in the fifth set and that was the uh, most recent time a uh, match point had been saved in a slam final up until Wimbledon last year so uh, interesting stat there. Number two for me, Simona Halep finally getting her maiden slam title uh, in her fourth attempt in 2018 over Sloane Stevens. So finally got there in a three-set thriller. 
number one, well, 2009, Roger Tears, on his fourth attempt in a Roland Garros final, he finally claimed the one tournament that he wanted and completed the career, career slam. He felt as though the pressure was off the back and that uh, Robin Soderling couldn't uh, beat, he couldn't do the Nadal Federer double. He beat Nadal for the first time ever in that 09 uh, Roland Garros tournament, but Roger claimed his one and only French Open title. Benoit of the week, Joel. Um, our segment that we've invented for the... Uh, for our favourite Frenchman, who's, uh, you know, as you said a couple of weeks ago, great, but also downright stupid. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, our favourite storm in a teacup, Benoit Pair. And uh, we've had uh, Benoit, Djokovic has had two. He's our leader, Donald Trump, Ozark, Jeannie Bouchard. And uh, who is our Benoit 7? Yeah, Benoit number seven is Fabio Fornini, the Fog Dog. Uh, happy birthday, Fabio, by the way. Um, the big 33, 33 years old. Um, but you've put this in the run sheet, Val. He's apparently sponsored by Armani, and um, well, we think that is the most Fabio Fornini thing in history. And there's a lot of Fabio Fornini things, isn't there? Yeah, there's a hundred percent. But I, I was sitting at um at the shops yesterday, and I was in front of the Armani outlet, and I'm like, that looks a hell of a lot like uh, Fornini sponsor logo. And I'd always, I'd never really looked up who it was, but um, I looked up yesterday at Fabio Fanini sponsor, and it was Armani. And of all people to be sponsored by a high end brand, it ha- it have to be Fabio. It just has to be. So um, it's just it's brilliant on every level. So um, but Fabio goes into our Benoit of the week segment, and uh, I'm sure that's not the last time he's going to feature. No, definitely not. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll see him a bit more often. 100%. Well, Joel, it's been an awesome show. Jam-packed, actually. We've had heaps to get through. So thanks so much for your efforts today, mate. It's been a pleasure as usual. No, always a pleasure, mate. It was a big show. But, um, yeah, hopefully uh, our listeners enjoyed it and uh, catch you next week. Catch you then, mate. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram, Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook, the same. All of our stuff goes on there. And you can uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, Wooshka, wherever the hell you get your podcasts. Uh, it's been an absolute joy to have uh, Gabby De Silverfick and uh, James Duckworth on the show. Big thank you to both of them. Thank you to Joel Frucci. I've been Val Febo. This has been Breakpoint Podcast. Catch you next week.